Happy Monday. Boy, I, you know, it's funny. These uh, these days leading up to Christmas or, or Hanukkah, I mean, it is just a mad dash. It is. A, has traffic for you been just out of control? Because for me, where I live, it's gotten worse over the last couple of days. Now, I know this is an important time of year for these road crews. They are... They're, they're they're really kind of finishing up what they can do for the year. They, they work as long as they can, but once it snows and there's, you know, a couple of feet on the ground, it's impossible. But I live in the Novi area, and the area with by the mall, like ninety six and Novi Road, the place where it's bad anyway. Where where it's bad anyway is down to one lane each way. And it's not like, I mean, that's bad enough, right? So if you got to get over to Fountain Walk or you got to get over to, to 12 Oaks, it's almost impossible. But it just clogs everything up around there then because everybody's trying to circumvent it, trying to find a different way around. I mean, it is an absolute mess. But uh, I, I'm i with you. Uh, power to the people. Make sure you're getting around safely <laughs> when, you're, when you're going uh, Christmas shopping or holiday shopping because... Uh, it's it's a tough time of year, uh, but Ford, uh, according to their new sales, there should be less cars on the roadway. Uh, Ford's U.S. sales fell a half a percent last month, although EV sales did hit a record high for the Blue Oval. Ford reported selling nearly 100,000 less vehicles in November of 2023 compared to the same time last year. Sales of EVs were up 43 percent to almost 9,000 EVs with Ford pulling up right behind Tesla as the number one EV seller. Also, hybrids. Vehicle sales rose 75%, which tells you, I think, a nice snapshot of where, where we are from a consumer perspective as it comes to the type of vehicles that are, that are, be, uh, that are out there and available. Uh, record high EV sales uh, comes as Ford's pulling back EV investments. The Marshall plant, the plant out in Kentucky. The, the automakers are starting to hit the brakes on this a little bit. Not that this isn't the future or won't be the future, but as we stand now, the sales of EVs are not as robust as maybe they had anticipated or forecasted. So as a result, they're pulling the reins back a little bit. They're going to start kind of taking a more measured approach very much like General Motors is doing now, and and we'll see where they go forward. But but there is an all of a sudden a hesitancy to EV vehicle production. So we'll continue to watch it. Meanwhile, we have I, I have been trying to keep my finger on the pulse of what is happening inside the Michigan Republican Party, and we've talked to different people. We talked to Andy Seabolt last week who is no longer with his position inside the MIGOP because he got fired through an email. Well, now a group of Michigan Republicans have submitted a request. They did it this weekend, calling for a special meeting of the GOP State Committee two days after Christmas, December 27th, to consider the removal of Christina Caramo and other members of her leadership team. Now, if the request is successful, a vote will take place that day. 
December 27th. Ten months, roughly, before the presidential election in 2024. There would need to be a, a huge majority of people. A huge majority of people, 75%, as a matter of fact, of the state committee would need to agree to unseat Christina Carano. So it's not easy, but they have they have got over that first hurdle. We'll get into more of this coming up at 318. But when you consider a, a party for all intents and purposes is essentially bankrupt. When you consider they don't have enough money to keep the lights on. Or they're trying to sell off a state headquarters that they don't even have rights to. They're so strapped for cash that they're not going to be a real player in the 2024 presidential election as we stand now. But if things change, if leadership changes, and I'm not saying one way or the other, but but realistically, if they were to go on this path, I don't know what the variables would need to change for them to be able to fundraise more money or or bring in more more dollars and cents. If something changes, well, that might be a more realistic opportunity for the party to collect more funds. But as of right now, they don't have that. There's obviously a divide inside the Michigan GOP because there are people calling for Christina Caramo's head. There are people calling for her job and and her supporters, her high-level leadership, their jobs, because they don't think the party's going in the right direction and they think she's steering the party in a direction they don't want it to be in. Uh, In the meantime, it's deja vu all over again. In 2016, remember, cybersecurity experts warned that there were thousands of fake social media accounts pushing false information about candidates that were running for president, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Well, now we're learning that there was another effort very similar to what happened in 2016 underway now, but this time it may have been thwarted by authorities. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne joins us with those details. Good afternoon, Marie. Hi, Chris. We're talking about a large network of almost 5,000 accounts, which was attempting to spread false content in an effort to divide U.S. voters ahead of next year's election. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, took action. They closed, closed all of these accounts down. The fake accounts were created by someone in China, according to Meta, and they looked legit. They had fake photos, names, locations as a way to appear like an everyday American Facebook user was weighing in on political issues. Now, Meta did not link the Chinese networks to the Chinese government, but they also found something unusual, and that was that the accounts that they deleted uh, complemented other Chinese propaganda and disinformation. Meta says the accounts were mainly used to reshare posts from X that were created by politicians, news outlets, and others. The content was both liberal and conservative, but it appeared the goal was not to support one side or another, but instead to further divide or exaggerate our differences. Experts say this newly identified network shows how Americans, America's enemies rather, are working to exploit social media platforms to inflame discord and distrust as we enter into an important election cycle chris the network will also use the same mo in other countries so these are i i I looked into these these are generally called troll farms and Mm -hmm. they've they've obviously in china as you pointed out they're very big in russia and this goes back to 2016 as you mentioned Mm -hmm. 
there was no evidence that I saw that Russia was changing votes. Right? That didn't exist. What did exist are these troll farms that were putting out just blatantly bogus fabricate wild. wild. There was one of Hillary Clinton in a in a in full like female. What, what is that? Uh, what, you can only see the eyes of Muslim women. Oh, oh with their uh, the burqa, the burqas. Yeah, I mean full. Rega- I mean it, it, and uh, she supports ISIS or what? It was just crazy. But these are these are paid. These are, these are jobs. I mean, you go and you work for twelve hours a day, and you just create come up with the stuff, fake nonsense. So going back to two thousand sixteen, it wasn't Russia wasn't getting into our systems and changing votes. They had these troll farms set up, and they were changing the minds of people. Mm-hmm. It's our duty to make sure that we are responsible voters. But this, nonetheless, is an absolute problem, especially when you pair it with these deep fakes that are out now going into the election in twenty twenty four. There are just so many things that people have to be aware of. They need to be discerning, right, yes. about what they're looking at. And I, I saw, I remember back in 2016, some of those, I mean, they were outlandish and crazy. I thought they were. But then I noticed people that I knew were reposting them. Mm-hmm. And these, to me, were people, they were thinking Educated. people. Yes. And I remember thinking, wow, do they know what they're reposting there? But that's exactly what so they were convincing. counting on. It looks so real mm-hmm. some cases. I don't know the burqa with Hillary Clinton. I don't know how that makes sense. But but in some cases, it's very, it, it is very realistic. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very easy to fall into that when you're just, you know, scrolling on Facebook or scrolling on X and you come across something. But these troll farms are, are massive. I mean, there's just thousands of computers in a room and people are just sitting there typing away and, ah. Uh, it is it is an absolute huge and, problem. And now it's nice to see that intelligence is making sure that they're keeping track of these things. Well, you know what? We're talking about 5,000 accounts here. You wonder how many oh, are still out there. It's a drop in the bucket. Yeah. It is a drop in the bucket. But uh, 5,000 is better than nothing. Reposters, beware. No doubt about it. Marie Osborne, thank you very much. Thank you. Got to take a break. We're going to talk about this continuing war between Israel and Hamas. What happens... If Israel is successful and they're, Hamas is rooted out, what, what, is, what is the current state in Gaza now? We'll talk about all that next on JR Afternoon. Well, if you've been listening to this show, as we continue to try to bring you the latest, make sense of what's happening in the Mideast, well, I, I told you that the ceasefire wasn't going to last. And, and now Israel and IDF forces are back to carrying out air attacks on northern Gaza, and, and, and the idea is they are certainly going to get into southern Gaza. But there was never in my mind a realistic chance that some sort of permanent ceasefire was going to take hold. I mean, you go back to 2008. What happened? There was a ceasefire. Then came 2012, a couple of years where it was quiet. 2012, after that, a ceasefire. Then came 2014, then a ceasefire. And then there was a a, a few more years. 2021 came around, a ceasefire. And then October 7th. And, And while there is really strong efforts underway to to extract hostages from Gaza, extract hostages that Hamas is holding, 
there was there is a different tenor coming out of Israel, and and much of those words coming from Benjamin Netanyahu, and there is, I mean, he hasn't really minced his words. In a nutshell, they're going to root out Hamas, and so the question I have is, well, then what happens next? Who runs the strip? What kind of government is going to be put in place? Because. Even back when Hamas was elected, 40-some percent of people voted for them. And I, I'm not a, under the assumption that they have less supporters or more supporters now. But it is a, a bit of an unsustainable model. So what happens next? Because the, the assumption is that the IDF and Israeli forces aren't going to stop until Hamas has been eradicated. That's where Michael Birnbaum, a national security reporter, steps in with The Washington Post. Hey, Michael. Hello. How are you? Um, Well, um, so now that bombardments have restarted once again in Gaza, I I think it brought the question back more to the forefront for me. And ironically, uh, you and some others at at WAPO put a piece together. Who's going to run Gaza after this war? Has there been any clear picture of which way the strip and the people uh, will will tend to gravitate towards once maybe things calm down? Well, as you were saying, it's a tremendously complicated situation. Um, and, you know, it's hard to do planning in the middle of a war. But um, I was just in Israel last week with the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and the Biden administration is trying to do that right now. They're trying to come up at least with the start of a conversation about plans for who runs Gaza after this war. And the idea they have is the Palestinian Authority, which is the group that's run the West Bank uh, for for a long time and, and, and used to run Gaza uh, a, a long time ago. Is there is there is there a sense of a time frame on that when something like that could that could be coming? Because. I mean, Hamas is still in control in the Strip, and, and until they are rooted out, it doesn't seem like that's going to change, and it's very difficult to determine the length of this conflict. But is there is this something that they would like to see happen sooner or than later? Would that, do they feel like, would call off the IDF to a certain extent? What's the time frame here? I don't think that they feel that coming up with a concrete plan for Gaza is going to help the Israeli government get to a place where they feel as though they can stop their offensive. I think that's kind of a separate uh, uh, question. But nevertheless, they do want a concrete plan of what happens uh, on the day after the conflict. That's something that Blinken was talking about the day after and then a plan for the day after the day after the the longer term future of Gaza. Um, It's still unclear you know, how long the Israeli offensive is going to last. It's unclear um, what it means to eradicate Hamas, you know, in in, in practical terms, um, whether that just means, uh, you know, taking out its top leadership or does it mean something bigger and more extensive. Um, But, you know, the Americans are saying, basically, this is an incredibly complicated uh, discussion about who runs Gaza and we need to start having it now. So I think their idea basically is, have some sort of peacekeeping force, who knows who those would be, and then eventually uh, the Palestinian Authority administering Gaza. But um, 
it's still very much in the beginning phases. You, you mentioned the Palestinian Authority. It, would Abbas be the one to step up and fill that role? Do the Palestinian people want him back? The short answer is no. The yeah. Palestinian people do not want him back. He's not popular. Um, he hasn't faced Palestinian voters in a very, very long mm-hmm. time. He was elected to a four-year term, and I think he's in the 18th year of that four-year term because he hasn't held elections again. Um, so this is part of the challenge. He's eight, and he's 88 years old. Right. Um, so uh, the that American doesn't really matter talk- much uh, here in our country. So I don't know why that matters anywhere else. <laughs> Well, the Americans talk about a revitalized Palestinian authority, and, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, play that you can uh, uh, do with that word revitalization. But basically, I, I think, you know, in some form, they they are thinking uh, they need new leadership. And um, whether it's a boss stepping aside or whether it's just people operating underneath him who are a little fresher. Um, that would be their goal. And ideally, with reforms, less corruption, more tolerance of open media and civil society, but the goals of helping foster uh, a more ordinary and, and open society uh, for people of Gaza and also the West Bank. I, I think that's what the Americans are driving at. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you said that, because it, do you believe that from the Americans point of view or, or, or other leaders in the region even, are, are they interested in a two state solution? The, the Americans are. Yes, of course. But but for those inside, for somebody who would have to be the leader uh, of those of those areas is is. Is that kind of a, a prerequisite from an American perspective as as a as a, a real trait that you would need to be a leader of the Strip or, or the West Bank? It's a tremendous challenge uh, at this point. Um, the two state solution is kind of something from the 1990s. Uh, you know, that was when there was the most hope, the most possibility. Then um, there has been a lot of fighting and a lot of bad blood since then. And. Um, so it's it's difficult. Um, I, I think the Americans very much want uh, to find leadership uh, for the Palestinians who who would be interested in investing a lot of energy in um, those kinds of discussions that would be needed to bring about a Palestinian state that would coexist mm-hmm. alongside Israel. Um, I think that it's uh, trickier to, to, to find um, the you know, those kinds of moderate voices sure. uh, uh, on, on the ground. So it, it is really uh, tricky. And it's also hard, you know, it's not really in the mainstream of Israeli uh, discussions either. Sure. sure. Or yeah, it, so it's very tricky. It, it, it is a tricky, it's a, it just goes with the whole situation. Everything about it is tricky. Michael Birnbaum with Washington Post. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time and insight. Thanks for having me. Yep, we'll talk again very soon. Got to take a break. We'll get to your calls and texts coming up next on JR Afternoon. All right, 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Who runs Gaza after Hamas is rooted out, if Hamas is rooted out? I think that's that, to me, is the question worth exploring. And I don't have the answer. I mean, nobody really has that answer yet. But I'm more interested to know what the what the ideological makeup of that person, that group, that government needs to be. I'm just I I don't know. 
because, you know, we, we just talked to Michael Birnbaum from the Washington Post. If you missed that interview, uh, thegreatvoice.com. Of course, you can listen to us on Alexa, Google, the, ask Siri, she'll play our, our app, whatever you need. But the interesting thing here is I, I asked about the two-state solution. And Michael Birnbaum says, well, that's kind of an antiquated thing. It's from the 90s. But it, it's, still, <laughs> it's still incredibly relevant. This is still, a, it, it's not that Israel or Gaza or the West Bank are going anywhere. So th- there, there needs to be a certain level of acceptance that everybody's there together. Everybody shares or, or, or is in this same area together. You're all the same space. So I, I, I'm not really entirely sure what the, the ideological makeup needs to be of the next leader. But, but I think that has to be part of it. I think that has to be, there has to be a sense that Israel is not going anywhere. Gaza's not going anywhere. The West Bank isn't going anywhere. So we need to find a way to, to understand each other a little bit. And look, is that pipe dream and utopia way of thinking? Of course it is. Because the realities, which you know is the world that I live in, the realities are people, at least the perception from those inside of Gaza is that it, some, some people inside Gaza is that they're landlocked, there's nowhere for them to go, and they're not able to live and work and worship on the places that are, are, are important to them and their religion. It, same goes for Israel. But I'm not sure that we can get to the, that next stage of leadership in places like Gaza or the West Bank without a, a certain sense of understanding. And I, I don't know how we get to that point either. I mean, you see how, how, how awful this has gotten. So I don't know how we get there. But if you want to weigh in on that, 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. The United States obviously has a vested interest in making sure that it is a peaceful region the United States, along with their arguably largest ally in Israel, have a vested interest in peace in the region. So I, I, I don't think that there's any doubt that the United States, uh, currently with Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, uh, others, uh, certainly Qatar, Egypt, everybody in the region that's got a, a vested interest, I imagine they'll be very important in these discussions going forward and trying to find a group that will be able to take over and, and, and live that utopian way, this this pipe dream of of peace in the region. But I don't know how we get there. I don't know that anybody has that answer, and that's really the root of the problem. 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Brian, you brought something up to me that um, it it makes my blood boil. <laughs> now, really? I I, I want to say, um, I enjoy the band Kiss. Okay. I like them. Sure. They're fine. Uh, I think they're incredibly influential. 
Um, I went and saw them when they played Kobo the last time. Oh, wow. This would have been like 90 or not 90, 2008 or nine. Yeah. Um, and it was a great show. Awesome show. They played Kiss Alive. It was awesome. Um, but they are, th- what do we know about Kiss? Outside the music, they are master advertisers. Oh, absolutely. Right? They have the Marketers, Kiss Coffin, yes. right? The whole oh, yeah. They have everything in between. What they have done, I don't know. I don't know how I, I, I feel in my bones that I really hate it. <laughs> I, I, that I know. That, that is the visceral feeling I have. I don't know. I don't know if any band should do this. What, what have they done? They, their, well, their last concert ever. Saturday night. Okay, sure. Sure it was. Well, this is according to them. 50 years they're done. At the end of the concert. They played at Madison Square Garden? Played at Madison Square Garden two nights, Friday night, Saturday night. At the end of Saturday night, their last show, uh, they left the stage. Music came back up. God God made rock and roll for you. Okay. Their song. And video started playing. They have done screen captures, like, of all of them, Mm -hmm. like, they wore the gear and the whole thing to be CGI'd. Okay. So they did a performance. Uh, they're going to be avatars now. And they're basically, I don't know what the difference between an avatar and a hologram is, and I'm digging into it. It doesn't seem like a hologram stands alone. Avatars, to me, are on the screen. But they are now stupid. Avatar. It's stupid. And they're calling a new Kiss Kiss's New Era. Are you, would you go see... An it's, avatar version of Kiss. It seems like it's just watching a movie. So you're going, you're going to see. It'll be at a movie I, theater. I might, but I'm not paying as much as I would pay to see a live concert. I I, I might hate give you ten bucks so like much. a movie. It's in, it's an interesting idea, but once again, I'm not going to give you eighty hundred dollars to watch this, I, unless it's something that I don't know. Like the hologram shows, I guess are very big. Abba has one overseas that is oh. huge and people go to pay and watch abba perform and this hologram. okay where do they play do they play at like a stadium they have their own thing in sweden abba's huge and well, they sure, have their own museum you can and they have within this museum apparently a small concert venue you buy tickets there's holograms of the young abba performing which is a cool idea i mean you might go to see what that was a hologram but they're calling these avatars and that's different to me so, I feel like part of a concert experience is you're going, you're going to see somebody. Yeah, you're in the room with them. Like, not only are you going to see them, but you're going to feel them. Yeah, right. Like I went and saw, like I had a religious experience when I went and saw Van Halen in 2004. Sure, because it was Eddie, it was Eruption, it was it was all of it. Right, the 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 double bass bass drum for Hot for Teacher comes in. I mean, it's just it's madness, and you're feeling it inside your body, like it's just so intense. Yeah, this is not that. It cannot have that same effect, can no. it? No. If no, you, absolutely not. I'm wa- the hologram can't. Do I'm that. watching. I know that it's not you. Right. It's a cartoon. Right. I could buy the CD and listen at home. Oh, right. And pretty much the same thing. I don't, I don't like it. There's something to the live experience that you're going to lose here. Look, and the other thing that I hate about these bands, 
And, and look, I, the Rolling Stones did it. I think they're officially done now. Probably not. I don't know. The Rolling Stones, though, they're touring the now. The Eagles. Yeah. I mean, all of these bands have, this is it. Farewell. Oh, Stones are saying they're done. It's the farewell tour. Kevin and I have looked into the Stones. Here's the difference with the Stones and this. <laughs> and this is this is a personal gripe of mine. Are, are, uh, the uh, cheap seats to see the Rolling Stones. I'm talking they're in a football stadium. Yeah. The cheap seats, I mean, up by the rafters are over $500 yeah. to see the Rolling Stones. You want to get down by the front, you're going to pay $4,000. Now, I get it. They're living legends. I understand it. But $4,000? The difference is Mick Jagger is actually just a marionette. <laughs> He's not a cartoon. They're just uh, Keith Richards is just out there on strings. And then you go, how much is Kiss going to charge me to watch a cartoon of Kiss? Oh, it's Kiss. Stuff. They're going to charge you $800. <laughs> I just it it it's one of those things. I, I'm not a big Kiss fan. You know, our boss Anne is a huge yes. Kiss fan, so I'm sure yes. she would be into this. I'm curious I'd love to get her thoughts on this. I'm always fascinated on what they do because they are master marketers. Look, man. it's innovative. It's forward thinking. I, yes. I, I think it will turn them on to maybe a new and they're audience. saying you know think about this. It's a Kiss concert. They could be performing in. Four cities on oh, three continents in the same night. Why stop at four? <laughs> Make it every movie theater in the world. It's Kiss Avatar, whatever it is. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Avatars. Yikes. I'll show okay. you online. We'll watch the video. It's only 30 seconds long. It's fascinating. All right. Got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. We're talking Lions next with Lomas Brown. Well, they got out to a hot start. It was 21 nothing in the blink of an eye, probably before you... Cracked your first adult beverage yesterday. But scrappy New Orleans team fought their way back, but the Lions were able to come away with a win in New Orleans. They beat the Saints 33-28. to Lomas Brown, of course, had a front row seat to it all, and he joins us. Low, it, it started out fun, got a little tense there at the end, but what, what in your mind did the Lions do to... to ensure that they walked away from uh, from New Orleans with a win yesterday? Well, I think the one thing is that they started executing the offense, and I, I would say probably on both sides of the ball, but I thought the execution in the second half, particularly in the fourth quarter, I thought it got a lot better. I thought they were a lot sharper. I thought they executed a lot better than New Orleans did especially with New Orleans losing um, Derek Carr and having to go to Jamison, uh, Jameis Winston. So, it, you know, I think that was the thing. It was uh, almost, a, how you say, a matter of nutrition, nutrition with the Lions, just being able to survive the onslaught that the Saints came with. And believe me, man, it got nervous. Like you say, Chris, we started getting nervous because – the momentum surely shifted with New Orleans, but the Lions were able to hold them off, man. So it was a good, good, tough, hard win yesterday. Talk a little bit about that, because when you get out to that kind of lead early as a player, I got it. You mean you feel good? You feel like all right? We we can uh, we we can just kind of cruise through this one. Let's get home. We'll take the win. Make sure nobody gets injured. But when you start losing that edge, that competitive edge, when you maybe start going soft in the middle of the game, is it, how difficult is it to flip that switch back on to become 
a highly competitive team again because even the play calling after that 21 to nothing lead seven minutes in, I mean, it was different. It was a little more conservative. How hard is it to, to flip that switch mid-game? Oh, it's very hard. Like I say, I think football particularly is probably the only sport when you have momentum, when you lose it, it is so hard to regain that momentum back. I think that's the inside of the sports to do that in uh, because there's so many moving pieces, so many moving parts with all different players in fall and them having to kind of sync up and get back in rhythm. So, and, and Chris, it's something that we struggle with. Don't forget that we struggle in the second half yep. of games this year. So, you know, that just kind of compounded the problem yesterday with our slow starts that we normally have when we come out of halftime. So, again, you give the Saints a lot of credit, but when we start getting ready to face these real good teams, when you're talking about the Dallases and the San Francisco's yep. and, you know, these teams like that, the, the Philly, uh, Philadelphia teams, you got to execute on a high level, and you have to do it for a full 60 minutes. I was really, I, I, this year, really, uh, have been very impressed with Ali McNeil. I think he has taken a huge step forward uh, into a role that the Lions desperately need on the inside of that defensive line. He got banged up a couple of times yesterday, but every time he he got hurt, he came back in the game, and he got hurt again, and he came back in the game. The, I, to me, he is almost, he embodies what, what, what this team is all about, Dan Campbell, Brad Holmes, the toughness factor. How how do other players on this roster rally around a guy like that, a mentality like that? Yeah, that's what's going to have to happen. We're going to have to do that, and you're right. That's a great example. I'm glad you brought up the Lee McNeil because he's had a fantastic year. He should be considered definitely in the Pro Bowl spot. Um, this year, the way he's played. And, you know, him and Abe Hutchinson have been the leaders up there. You know, it was nice to see Bruce Irvins get in there, get a sack, even though it was, you know, it was a penalty called on that. But it's nice to see him get in there. We got to get other guys on that defensive front to get involved and start getting sacks. Not pressures, not hits, Chris. We got to get sacks because sacks are the impact plays. Uh, throughout the game. So, you know, Aleem has been doing his job the whole year. He needs the rest of the interior guys to come along and take their level of play up where his is. And, man, we can make a real difference when it starts getting late into December. We're early now in December, but when it gets late in December, that's when you mm-hmm. when you see the cream kind of rising to the top. I, I think some fans are getting a little anxious with this defense. Obviously, they've got serious injuries that they're trying to work through. I, I thought Bruce Irvin was a shot to the arm yesterday for that pass rush, but but they it, it was pretty obvious to me that they, they missed Alex Anzalone. They, they are bringing along... Uh, Jack Campbell, who had the green dot on his helmet to, to to relay plays yesterday. But this defense has fought through some real adversity, too. What did you think of their performance yesterday? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's it, – it, I mean, yeah, it, it's up and down. Yeah. You know what I'm saying, Chris? It really is. I mean, at one moment, you know, the defense looks great. 
you know, getting turnovers and, you know, doing things like that. And in the next moment, you see these, our, our secondary sometimes playing five yards off the receivers, not getting physical with those guys. Again, then you start seeing the quarterback buying time, not necessarily breaking the pocket and running, but just buying time in the pocket, you know, the, the letter receiver come yep. open downfield, you know, so you kind of see these little kind of lapses that happen, you know, throughout the course of a game. And when they happen, they normally can cost you big and they normally cost us big. So, again, when we go against these better teams, man, you're going to have to be sharpened with yep. your, your execution. You're going to have to be sharpened. You can't have these lapses sometimes that I think we have on the defensive side of the ball. And, you know, uh, we have to just, like I say, just keep executing at a high level. Chris. Well, if they're able to get James Houston back here in the next couple of weeks, yeah. if if yeah. if – CJ Gardner Johnson is able to come back at some point. Yeah. Those are those are impactful players that that they weren't necessarily counting on being on long term injury lists. So that if they can come back, that would certainly help this team. By the way, uh, I was in uh, uh, South Florida for Thanksgiving, not far from from your uh, your home city, and, and I still saw you on America's Thanksgiving Parade presented by Gardner oh, Whiteway. I still caught you. Yeah, even though I was down there, I wasn't going to miss you on, on TV, Low. It was good stuff. Yeah, man, I appreciate that, Chris. <laughs> it was fun, man. I had the mayor driving me around. Yeah, how about I that? like a big wig. That's right. Low, appreciate you, man. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Chris. All right, that's Lomas Brown, of course, uh, right here on WJR. Got to take a break. More next. I feel like this is turning into a little bit of a thing now, so I want I want to bring this to you, we were talking a little bit of the last segment. By the way, if you miss any of the show, thegreatvoice.com, you can check out all of our discussions, interviews, the whole nine. Um, we were talking about this this uh, new endeavor for KISS. They just played their last show, allegedly. I'll believe it when I see it. But they played their last two shows at Madison Square Gardens. And at the at their very last show, after they walk off stage... They played a video of Kiss uh, shooting, you know, like uh, they they put you in the suits. Motion capture. Yeah. And they showed them behind the scenes of basically each band member turning into an avatar, turning into a, a character of themselves. And that's how Kiss will go on. And I think Paul Stanley said, we're bigger than the band and this is how the band can continue. Okay, fine. To me, you go see a show, you go see a band, you go see a concert or a singer. You're going to see that person. You're going to see that 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 human do that thing that you can't do and play the hits that you can't play. And when you turn it into a cartoon like Kiss is doing or you put it as a hologram like ABBA, you're not you're not there. You're not experiencing you're experiencing something, but you're not going to see that person. It's not the concert anymore. It's totally different. It's it's completely morphed into a concert experience, not really a concert. So I I just or would you be interested to let's say under the tree this year, your spouse maybe Ed Battersby needs to get Ann tickets to go see uh, Avatar Kiss. Is she going? She might. Yes, because she, she owns most of the Kiss memorabilia. She loves Kiss. Yes, but but. I don't know that most people are interested in that. 
And maybe I'm maybe maybe I'm crazy. So if you want to weigh in on that, 800-859-0957. Didn't they do that for, like, Michael Jackson, too, for, like, an award show or something? Yeah, and, um, and Tupac. Tupac. They Tupac. did it for Tupac. Yeah, the, Tupac's gone. He's dead. That's you the point, Chris. You can't see Tupac anymore. He's dead. So in order for us to see him, the generations that didn't get to see him, we can go experience it. No. That's the point, Chris. Throw it on YouTube. Same no. thing. No. It's not the same thing. Same thing. The music is going to be louder. There's going to be a group of people that Mm. also love Tupac all there. It's going to be a concert experience. It's not just a a plain screen. No, no, it's not a plain screen. There's multiple screens, so it looks like that person is up there. It's not just flat like you're thinking. No, no, no. I'm not saying it's flat. I just think it's not the real person, which is true. It's not. It isn't. But for people who haven't gotten to see that person... Take it is call. a great option. All right, fair enough. Tony in St. Clair, real quick. What's up, Tony? Hey, Chris. Hey. Um, great, great show. I was just call, thinking about uh, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Yep. They have four or five different companies mm-hmm. that go across the, the United States and play different shows. Mm-hmm. So you're really not seeing Trans-Siberian Orchestra. You're so, a- so, yeah. So, but Trans-Siberian Orchestra, that they don't make uh, – I, I don't think they – Hide that. Like, you're going to see Trans-Siberian Orchestra. It's a collective, right? So you, I don't know that you're necessarily going to see one person. Or you're not, go, there's no, like, there's no, no nobody that sticks out at Trans-Siberian Orchestra. But those are people playing <laughs> instruments at an event, at a concert. That, to right, me, is yeah, different but, than seeing a hologram or a, a cartoon in Kiss's case. Oh, yeah, there's, there's nothing like an actual concert. I agree. All right, Tony, good stuff. I'm a big Kiss fan. I want to waste my money on their avatar. All right. That's it. The one and only. It's all I needed. Tony, thank you. Appreciate you. Uh, I want to get you caught up on a couple of other things. Um, Good weekend in football. We'll talk about Michigan. Uh, Lions, obviously, with a big win. Uh, They are are rolling. And good trait for the Lions. Every time they've lost a season, they've responded with a win. So that's good news. Uh, we'll talk about Michigan. Angelique Shane Gallus will join us at 335. But Michigan entering the college football playoff as the number one seed. It is something else that I don't know that many people would have thought of. Uh, also coming up later this hour, I do want to talk about an experience I had this weekend shopping for a Christmas tree. Because we're a bit of a Christmas tree snob family. Uh, and we didn't have a lot of success, but Michigan ranking very highly in this category of Christmas tree. We'll do that uh, coming up as well. Uh, Ford saying that their sales fell a half a percent as opposed to the same time last year in November. Um, they sold about, about 100,000 less cars, but EV sales were up, hybrid sales were up. And this comes as the company, along with others like General Motors, are going to kind of reimagine how they are going to roll out EVs, whether or not they need to pull the reins back uh, or or push that accelerator forward. At present, it seems like they're going to pull back a little bit and adjust to what the market is demanding. Right now, the market isn't demanding a tremendous amount of electric vehicles. Uh, meanwhile, mental health in the nation's schools continues to pose a challenge because most school districts say they don't have enough resources to hire enough mental health professionals to help students. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne joins us saying the technology may be offering the help everyone is seeking at the right price. Hi, Marie. 
Hey, Chris, at least 16 of the 20 largest U.S. public school districts are offering online therapy sessions, and it's in an effort to reach millions of students. The Associated Press finds that those districts have signed contracts of of more than $70 million, and educators around the country continue to sound the alarm that the nation's kids are struggling with mental health issues and that the problem started long ago and the pandemic made it all worse. But there are also some concerns about this surging industry. Venture capitalists are funding a new group of these teletherapy companies to focus on the needs of schools. Some experts are concerned about the quality of care offered by these companies. Right now, there is no significant oversight in this area. Some schools have reported that early evidence is showing that teletherapy actually works for kids. For kids in rural districts or lower income districts, the therapy is easier to access. And students uh, and the schools that the students connect with these counselors either during the school day or after hours. In November, New York City launched a free telehealth therapy service for teenagers. New York is paying the startup Talkspace $26 million over three years for a service allowing teens ages 13 to 17 to download an app to connect with licensed therapists by phone, video, and text. Hmm. And Chris, unlike other cities, New York is offering this service to all the teenagers, whether they're enrolled in private or public schools or even home schools. You know, what's interesting is uh, my my son is in kindergarten and his school district sent a letter home the other day and they said, we have X amount of money for the district and we want to use it on mental health resources. And they gave us like three or four different options to choose from. What would you like? Would you like more nurses on staff? Would you like uh, more licensed therapists on staff? We won't have as many because they're expensive. Uh, Would you like some sort of hybrid where you're seeing more more mental health uh, professionals on staff and supplement that with these types of telehealth, of huh? telehealth or, or um, um, uh, you know, different types of remote services. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting because is it is it the best way to address mental health issues? Probably not. Is it better than nothing? Is it a is it a good resource to have around for people? Could that help somebody? Of course. Of course it would help. And, you know, a lot of adults, this isn't just for children, a lot of adults have gone to online therapy. They don't even go into their therapist's office anymore. They do it online. Started during the pandemic, worked just fine. So that's what they do. Pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I love that your school district asked you what you thought we should do. I think that's a great idea. They got a little pot of money. And I, uh, you know, I don't know that we know the results of that yet, but, but at least there is some thought Right into what would be best for you. How would this help your student or students um, if they needed it? What do you think would be most beneficial to them? It's not going to be, it's not cookie cutter, right? Now, it's not whatever yeah, it's not you help choose may kid. not help everybody right. in every circumstance, but at least there is some, it's in the four. It's in, you, yep. you are actively thinking about it. You've got money put aside for it. So let's figure out the best way to spend it. I think that's a Good way to go about it. Right. And reaching way more students. Reaching way more students. Marie Osborne, thank you. Thank you. All right. We got to take a break. More turbulence inside the MIGOP. We'll talk about it next on JR Afternoon. Well, it's just absolute pandemonium inside the Michigan GOP. My words. And I don't I don't know what exactly the fixes are, but 
Some inside the party say the fixes would be to remove Christina Caramo as chair of the state Republican Party. Craig Mauger is the reporter with the Detroit News and joins us. Craig, good to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Quite a moment for the Michigan GOP. There's no doubt about it. What are what are some of those inside the party trying to do here? They're trying to get a special meeting of the Michigan Republican Party State Committee called on December 27th, two days after Christmas, to hold a vote on whether to remove Chairwoman Christina Caramo, the leader of the party right now. And what do they what do they cite as the main reasons for that? I mean, obviously, you have been uh, and with your past. Um, very active on campaign finance and and the money that they've got in the bank, which isn't a lot, at least as of what August they had about thirty five grand in it. So yeah. they, they're strapped for cash, and they're they're trying to install a new way inside the party and how the party would be able to help choose candidates for elected offices. But there, there seems to be a lot of dysfunction. What, what would it require for those to, to seek her removal? What, what would they need? For them to remove her, they're going to need at least two-thirds of the state committee. The state committee has about 100 people. So they'd have to change the bylaws and try to move the threshold to oust a party officer down to two-thirds. It's currently three-fourths, which is an even higher standard to have to meet. And that's not going to be easy because some of these people are the most dedicated, you know, party activists, the most dedicated to Karamo. She's turned a lot of people who were supporting her previously off, but I don't know if she has turned all of them off mm-hmm. on the state committee. So it's, it's not an easy task for those who are trying to oust her. What is, uh, from from your standpoint, what is the, the tenor of... of the current Michigan GOP, where are, what is the morale like inside? Do they, do they feel like they're on the right trajectory from those inside the party? No, I mean, I think the morale within the party is divisive. It's frustrated. They're focused on trying to figure out this internal squabble, not trying to figure out how to win the next election. I mean, keep in mind, why does this matter? I mean, we have a government system that's based around having two functional parties who nominate candidates and then voters sort out who's better. That's what our system's based around. If one of the parties is not functioning, doesn't have money, doesn't have a team out there to be able to go advocate, can't campaign, is about to default on its line of credit, these are things that will restrict that party from being able to run effective campaigns. The presidential election in 2024 is less than 12 months away right now. From people that you've talked to, what what is the ideal situation for, for those that maybe would like to see Christina Caramo removed from power? What What is the ultimate goal here? Is the idea that if she goes, then the money starts coming in? I think that's the goal. I think they want to see a new chair put in place, somebody who's willing to work with the different factions of the party, try to bring people together. Maybe if they can't get along, they can at least cooperate and get on some sort of the same page. That's what they're saying. I mean, that's easier said than done because there are so many different fishers within the party right now. But that's the the goal that they're at least talking about. I was uh, given an email uh, that Christina Caramo had sent out late Friday. I'm sure you've seen the same one. But there is a, a, a different grouping of priorities for what the Michigan GOP is looking at. Um, 
and and that's party structure, legislation, the good neighbor program, election integrity, and changes to uh, that that inevitably led to Andy Seabolt's dismissal from the party. Um, do you believe that those inside feel like these are the proper pillars to be putting the party up on, or would they like to see different focuses other places? I think they want to see some of the same focuses, but also some different focuses. I mean, one of the core disagreements here is how the party should handle these internal conflicts. Should the party be taking help from anyone that is willing to provide it? I mean, keep in mind that members of Christina Caramo's leadership team have flat out said that they do not want help from some of the past large donors Mm -hmm. who have funded this party for so many years. Uh, The others are saying we should be taking help from whoever is willing to hand it to us. That's the state that we're in currently. I mean, the party had $35,000 in its bank accounts in August. So I think those are the kind of standpoint of disagreements that you have here. How do you deal with people that maybe you don't agree with everything on? I mean, Christina has taken a hard line. Others don't want to take such a hard line. Well, look, and a buck spends like a buck anywhere you go, depending on who you get it from. Dollars a dollar. And and that's where I think the the the, the Michigan GOP struggles right now is they, they don't want to take money from certain people because they don't want to feel like they're beholden. But at the same time, if they want to be a factor uh going into this next election cycle, um, they're gonna have to raise money. And and the fact that at this stage of the game, they they don't have serious cash on hand and you know, talking about trying to sell off the headquarters, which they don't even have the, the ability to do is, is a pretty shocking place for, I think a state party to be in on the, on the flip side, you're going against a Michigan democratic party that is rolling, that is able to, to bring in money. And I think that that's probably a a frustration point for a lot of those inside the Michigan Republican party saying, all right, well, we're trying to do our best. And you look across the aisle and, and you know, you're in a rowboat and the other uh, side is is in a speedboat. That's got to be frustrating. Oh, I think you're spot on. I mean, the, the difference in where the two parties are at right now could not be more distinct. The Democratic Party is a well-oiled machine with a governor, at, you know, Governor Whitmer at the front of it, who is getting a lot of national attention, can raise a lot of money. There's no one in place like that for the Republicans right now. Winning heals a lot of problems. Democrats have disagreements, but they've won a lot of elections in Michigan lately. Right now, the Republicans are facing the struggles that come along with losing elections and not having a leader, and that's just where they are. Is there any sense that Christina Caramo would be willing to come around on some of the issues or willing to listen in on the concerns of those who now oppose her. Is there any indication that she's willing to, 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 to sit down, talk with people and listen? I mean, that's, I can't answer that question, you know, for her. I'd be curious what she would say to that. I think we can only go by what her actions have been and her actions most recently have been throwing off some of the members of the state committee from committee assignments because they have disagreed with some of her approaches, basically. And she has said it's for other reasons, but it's it's clearly a lot of the people that were opposed to her within the state committee lost their committee assignments recently. You mentioned one of them, Andy Siebold. So that doesn't really set the tone up for harmony within the party. And that move to kind of throw some of these people out of these positions of influence, 
that move threatened, uh, frustrated a lot of people within the state committee and actually probably gave, if you talk to the opponents, they'll say that gave them more momentum and their push to push to try to gain the amount of signatures they need to call this vote to remove her in, on December 27th. So, you know, as she is trying to kind of hold on to power, consolidate her power, she's also risking maybe giving even more fuel to her opponents right now. Well, when you're not keeping your eye on the ball, you're looking somewhere else and, and you know, strikes are being thrown pat, or, or, you know, right down yeah. the plate. It's a problem as well. Um, when would this vote take place, do you think? Do they have the, the, the gusto to get it done? They're hoping that they can get it to take place December 27th. They're hoping that during that special meeting they can hold this vote. Whether or not that happens will, will depend on a lot over what plays out in the next few weeks. If they continue to gain momentum, I don't think they have the votes they need right now to vote her out, but they think they're going to get there, so mm. we'll see. Craig Mogger, as always, good stuff. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Yep, you got it. Uh, 800-859-0957 if you want to weigh in on that. Also, uh, coming up next, we're talking Michigan football. They are the number one seed going into the college football playoff and they've drawn the dreaded Crimson Tide. That's next on JR Afternoon. Well, if you've been listening to WJR for some time, you know about our annual Christmas on Us campaign. We're, we're excited here at WJR to bring it back. Help us recognize and honor those who have served our country and worked on the front lines to keep you and I safe. Nominate Michigan military, first responder, frontline worker families, you know who are deserving, and we'll give them a gift of Christmas this year. For full details and to make your nomination, visit WJR.com. And as always, WJR's Christmas on Us is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors like Genesis Cadillac, Kearns Brothers, Wine Guards, and Warren Consolidated Schools. So we, we are very excited, as always, uh, around this time of year uh, for for that to come back and uh, give back to those that have given so much to us. Uh, all right, 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. If you want to rap about what's going on inside the Michigan GOP, that's there for you as well. But uh, we, we talked to Lomas Brown earlier, nice weekend for the Lions. And now we welcome in Angelique Shangalis from the Detroit News to talk about the good weekend that was for the Michigan Wolverines. Angelique, good to have you. Chris, it's great to be here. Thank it, you. It was a it was a nice weekend in Indianapolis. I hope you had some St. Elmo's. I did not. You know, oh. I spent so much time in Indianapolis right? in my lifetime covering stuff. I got there very late on Friday. Fair enough. Did not did not go to St. Elmo's. <laughs> uh, the game was. I I don't know what I really expected. It's about what I expected offensively for Iowa. They're anemic. I mean, they, they are just horrific defensively they're very good and and I think it played out exactly where it was I think Vegas had the line at 22 23 and a half something like that and Michigan won it 26 to nothing what did you think of the game yeah I mean I think you're right and I, I think my prediction I had uh, Iowa scoring for 13 and and really I thought because of the defense I, I thought they were good for a pick six in this game but obviously that didn't happen and um, yeah, I mean, I think pretty much it, it went as I thought for Michigan. I mean, they didn't have Will Johnson out there, and they and they didn't need to have Will Johnson out there. He's recovering from a, a lower leg issue, and you know, it's their first game without Zach Zinner at right guard. And um, I was interested to see how that was going to play out. You know, how that how this offensive line was was going to do. And um, of course, he's not going to be able to get back because he had the you know surgery, surgery. right after the Ohio State game, but. 
Um, but the offensive line still needs it still needs some work. You know, they they really need to to get that shaped up heading into this Rose Bowl. I thought they played. I mean, that this was a this game has has been difficult from the standpoint of you know they get so high for that Ohio State game over the last three seasons. Inevitably, you're going to see a little bit of a dip, and and I think. We saw that a little bit. It's hard to get up for those kind of games consistently after beating Ohio State. But the fact that Jim Harbaugh wasn't on the sidelines the last three weeks and then returned, what did you see from from the sideline having Harbaugh back? Were, was there more juice? Were they excited to have him back? Obviously they were, but from a, from a kind of nuts and bolts standpoint, what, what did him being back mean for this team? Well, I, you know, talking to the players afterwards, I, I think that they did. They they really felt more comfortable having him back, and and um, you know they 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 did. They went three games without him, and Sharon Moore was the acting head coach. I don't think they ever lost a juice, though. You know, I, I think that is something that you know Harbaugh was there all week preparing them, just not on game day. And I I still think this this group is very self motivated. Um, you know, they just don't seem to flinch, and that is something that they've embraced. All season, I think it was their defensive backs coach, Steve Klinkscale, brought that. He was talking to the team, the entire team, one Friday early in the season, and he and he talked about never flinching. And I think that that team, this team, has embraced that. And um, and so they didn't flinch without Jim Harbaugh. And, and you know, when he came back, I I think they just felt more comfortable, like it, it was back to normal. And um, but I you know I didn't notice a noticeable difference. They they jump, you know, they come out on the sideline, the start of the game, got their chairs up and. You know, they're bouncing around. I just think afterwards, talking to a lot of these guys, um, they they really did. They just they were so happy to have him back. And, and that was the difference. They were just they just felt like it was more complete now. It was a wild championship weekend. I mean, across the board, Alabama beating Georgia, uh, FSU beating uh, Louisville uh, without Jordan Travis and um it, it was it was a fun weekend from a from a fan perspective, but when it came to the college football playoff committee trying to figure out who belongs in, who belongs out, Alabama got the nod over Florida State, who was undefeated, conference champ of the ACC. Um, did you think that was the right call? You know, I I really thought it was going to be Florida State. I, I really did, and I listened to these. These conference calls after every uh, Tuesday night after the the rankings are released, ask questions, and and that was a question that had been posed a week earlier about having an injured player, and and you got the sense the committee was not going to weigh heavily on that, and and clearly that that was a big issue, and you know I think the the Michigan players when I got into the room yesterday before the announcement, I saw a lot of them doing the the Florida State you know the tomahawk chop. So I think that they were all expecting to see yeah. Florida State and and a little bit you know I don't you know I, I know that there's a lot of conversation about the muted response when Alabama popped up but I I just think that they were all convinced that Florida State was deserving and would be in there mm-hmm. and, and probably did want to play Florida State considering but um yeah I mean I think you're seeing so much re- there's so much reaction now to Florida State being left out it's it's going to be a very interesting debate obviously it can't be changed but it really is unfortunate because um, yeah, they had they had such a good season going, and and it's such an unfortunate situation with their quarterback. Yeah, I, I I'm with you. I I just think I thought Florida State was was going to be in. I didn't think the committee 
had enough reason to keep Florida State out, but they did, and instead Michigan draws Nick Saban and Alabama. And, and if you would have told me, you know, around the time Alabama lost to Texas that mm-hmm. this team was going to be in the playoffs, I would have called you crazy. I mean, <laughs> I, I just th- – this is not a vintage Nick Saban Alabama team. They don't have uh, the the star-studded players – uh, on the outside, their their skill players are are a bit less than they have been in the past. Defensively, same thing. Um, but somehow Nick Saban's got that uh, that that fairy dust that he's able to sprinkle, uh, and he's turned this team into a playoff team. What what do you think of this draw for for the Wolverines? I think it's a good matchup. I, I really do. I mean, I think that Alabama, you know, the quarterback's interesting guy too, Jalen Milrow. I mean, he. He got benched early after that loss to to Texas. He didn't he didn't play the next game and and then came back and started and and has led them to eleven game winning streak. And you know I think he's he's I don't think a great passer, but he is very dangerous as a runner. And I think it's going to be a, a big test for Michigan's defense to stop him, contain him. But but I agree with you. This is this is not the uh, I'm trying to think what year it was when uh, it was Shea Patterson was at Michigan and. And they played Alabama, and and that boy, 2016 that, uh, skill, yeah, that skill, the skill positions players on that team were unbelievable, and um, yeah, but I, I think this is a good matchup, and and I think that um, it, it's going to be fun to see these two. I think what did Harbaugh call them? The two blue bloods playing in, yeah. in the Rose Bowl will be will be pretty cool. No doubt about it. Um, interesting stuff. Uh, Pasadena right around the corner. Angelique Shangelis, thank you so much. I appreciate Chris. Thank you. All right. We'll talk again soon. Got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. All right. Welcome back. It certainly was a fun football weekend. Steve Courtney joins us to break it all down. Steven, hello. Hello there, Chris. What's going on there, laddie? I was, it was a nice weekend, wasn't it? I mean, Lions bounce back after that horrendous Thanksgiving Day performance. And Michigan is going into the CFP as the number one seed. I boy, the the world is upside down. I don't know how we got to twenty twenty three. Yeah, I know you, sir, are a uh, happy man. This conversation, Chris, by the way, brought to you by the hardworking men and women at Bill Brown Ford. Forward down the field, the W's are stacking up, and the winged wheelers, well, they're doing very well. Thank you. My good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each and every day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their True View inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. Uh, yeah, in Nolens, uh yesterday afternoon, uh, the Lions couldn't have scripted a better start. Inside seven minutes of the tilt, obviously, Chris, they're up 21 nothing. That was the fastest a team had gotten to 21 nil inside seven minutes in some 13 years. Well, being the NFL and all, you knew the Saints, uh, being at home, were not just going to roll over. Uh, they came back, as a matter of fact, got as close as 24-21 late in the third quarter, and you're thinking, oh, boy, oh, boy, here we go. Now, I am extremely thankful, Chris, for two things as we're having this chat. I am extremely thankful for Sam Laporta. I've run out of adjectives to (laughs) describe this rookie tight end for the Honolulu Blue and Silver. A career-high nine receptions, 140 yards, and that included an early touchdown score. Not to mention, uh, he had a critical, critical catch uh, in the final minutes. Yeah, fourth down Um, play. 
Yeah, and I'm also extremely thankful that Jameis Winston got in. <laughs> oh. Oh. Uh, that uh, that was a fine elixir, wasn't it? Uh, the dude, two of five, 41 yards, and, you know, let's just be honest. Uh, he was Jameis Winston. Yeah. Um, some ill-fated throws, a um, couple of wide-open receivers that could have been difference makers. Um, but the Lions escape. Uh, with that 33-28 win. Uh, Jared Goff, 16-25, 213 yards, two touchdowns. And most importantly, uh, based on his last two games, he, ca- he he took care of the football, didn't he? Yeah, no, I, I, I made mention of that earlier. The fact that you're able to play clean on the turnover sheet a- after a few weeks of struggling, right? After a few weeks of being loosey-goosey with the football, the fact that they were able to play clean on that side – when you're able to shake that, it, it's got to feel really good. Yeah, and, you know, here's the deal. Uh, the Lions are sitting pretty. Uh, they are now a 9-3 and three football team. Uh, that has not happened uh, since 1962 when they began 10-2. and two. As far as the NFC North goes, and this is one of their paramount goals, obviously, uh, to uh, win a division for the first time in some 30 years. Uh, you've got the Packers. Nice home win for them last night. You know, Chris, I may have to reevaluate my whole Jordan Love stance. Um, this kid is playing some ball right now. I digress. The uh, Packers and Vikings, 6-6 six and six, uh, in the NFC North. Comfortable for the Lions. They just have to uh, take care of business week in and week out. They'll be in Chicago to face the Bears. By the way, both the Bears and Vikings coming off bye weeks. Lions. Uh, installed as three-and-a-half-point favorites, in case you're wondering. Um, was it an expensive win for the Honolulu Blue and Silver? I think they've used eight different offensive line combinations yep. in 12 games this year. Uh, center Frank Ragnow goes down. Oh, Rags uh, left in the first half with a knee injury. Afterwards, Dan Campbell saying, you know, originally it didn't look good, then maybe some better news. He was going to have an MRI today. Uh, to determine exactly uh, what the situation is. So uh, hopefully uh, it is nothing uh, all that serious. Well, and for me, I mean, pound for pound, he's the best center in the league. So when you've got that that anchor go down, I mean, you saw what happened. Cor- you know, Sorsdahl is a good player, and I actually think he's going to develop nicely. But when you throw a rookie from a you know a school like Williams and Mary, it's it's a this is a, this is the NFL. It's a tough place to be in. Then you got to kick Graham Glasgow over to center, who does an admirable job. But but when you lose Frank Ragnow or you lose your tackles, it, it it shows. And I think that that impacts the run game. Although, you know, I I think they were able to be competent in that re- regard yesterday. But it does. It it certainly impacts them. I'll tell you. You talk about uh, Lions general manager Brad Holmes and maybe the biggest chip in the pocket. And we all know what a draft he had. Um, that's on display week in and week out. But bringing Graham Glasgow back. Yeah, big one. Uh, oh, that was huge. You know, Big V now on uh, IR. You, you got a dude that has had a lengthy uh, uh, center resume going back to his days uh, at Michigan. And uh, just to be able to plug him in there uh, is tremendous peace of mind. Um, so there's that. Anyway, if I can chime in yeah. on this whole Florida State thing. Yeah, let's talk about that because – Yesterday was the selection committee. They came out. The, the college football playoff selection committee came out. Michigan moved up to number one because Georgia got beat by Alabama. 
Then it went to Washington, number two. And then there were some questions on who would be three and four. Texas uh, takes that that third spot. And at f- number four, you've got Florida State, the Seminoles, who were undefeated, ACC champion, right. uh, 13-0, and sitting out there. Alabama beating the number one team in the country in Georgia in the SEC championship game. Lots of different combination possibilities. But in the end, the committee selected Alabama with a loss to Texas in Tuscaloosa as the fourth team as opposed to an undefeated ACC champion. So go ahead. What are your thoughts? Well, a couple things here, Chris. Um, You'll recall leading up to that championship game with Alabama and Georgia, Nick Saban. Uh, weighed in saying what a travesty it would be uh, to not have a representative from the SEC uh, in the playoff. Um, Did the committee uh, take that to heart uh, with Nick Saban being, well, Nick Saban? Uh, I feel horrible for uh, Florida State, their head coach, Mike Norvell. Uh, They had a hell of a season. First time ever uh, you've got a conference champion undefeated, uh, not in the playoff. Um, And my question is this. Uh, the reason uh, the committee, I'm sure, uh, in fact, they pretty much said as much, uh, they're without their quarterback, Jordan Travis. As a matter of fact, beating Louisville, uh, you had the third string guy in. Mm-hmm. But what does that say uh, to the rest of the Seminole team? What does that say to the rest of a college football team who are maybe in a similar situation, although now that expansion's going on, I don't know if we'll see it again. Um, but you're penalizing this great football team because of personnel, uh, because they don't have a starting quarterback. They don't have a second-string quarterback. Um, And I don't know if that's right. Now, that being said, it's the committee's job to give us the four best college football teams, correct? Correct. I think by putting Alabama in there, they did that. Do you agree with that? So, yes and no. Now, I'm with you to a certain extent because I don't know. See, it's not like Florida State plays in the AAC or no offense to our friends uh, here close to home at the MAC, but they don't play in the Mid-American Conference. This is a Power 5 brand. This is Florida State. And the fact that they went undefeated, the fact that they won their conference championship, if any other team would be left out in that scenario – it would be mayhem. I, I, I just do not understand the, the, the committee's decision to leave out Florida State. I just don't know how you can do that. Other, because I agree with Mike Norvell, the head coach of Florida State, when he say, I don't know how, what, what do the games even matter then? Then don't even play the games. Well, I see his mentality there. And yeah. I just want to point out that with the freshman Brock Glenn at quarterback, you get a win over Louisville. And by the way, top uh, the 15 Seminoles, team. The, the, the Seminoles put up more yardage yeah. uh, than Michigan did against Iowa. <laughs> yeah. So you have that. And, and I don't know. We could sit here for the next week and a half. Uh, it is what it is. It is what it is. Steve Courtney, thank you, man. We'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, Chris. All right. That's going to do it for us, Mitch Album and the crew. Coming up next, have yourself a wonderful day. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place.